You're listening to Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias. The world's locked down and travelling isn't really an option. So I thought, why not do the next best thing and talk about it? From living all over the world to working as a tour guide, I've seen some amazing places and met some great people. Each week, I'll speak to globetrotters and industry professionals about their travel bubble choices to provide you with post-lockdown inspiration and top travel tips. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias. Welcome to new listeners and old listeners too. We are now in 48 countries, so wherever you are listening, welcome and I hope you are well. So a bit of Travel Bubble news. This week we did our first Travel Bubble day tour. So I took um, a couple of people, or three people, um, from Manchester, Scotland and Devon on a little um, 10k hike, a guided hike around one of the most beautiful walks in Cornwall, I think. And they seemed to really enjoy it, so it went, it went quite well. So it was not only was it like beautiful scenery, but we also I also talk about like, the history of piracy, smuggling, fishing, and Corn- like, everything Cornwall related. So it's not just like they're going for a walk, they're actually learning something too. I mean, we had a pasty as well at one of the best pasty shops uh, in the in the county as well. So... It went really well. So if you are in Cornwall this summer and you do want a guided hike, hike, walk or run from 5 to 50k, do let me know and we'll sort something out. But now it's time to introduce my guest for the day and that is Christian Schubert and this is episode 20, The Penguin Account. So about two and a half years ago, I actually applied um, to a company called Intrepid to be a tour leader for them. I um I was living in Slovakia at the time and I noticed that they they uh, offered hiking tours in Slovakia and I thought one of my dream jobs is to be a hiking guide hence like they're doing the hiking tours so I thought well I'd like to do that taking people up and down the the Tatra mountains uh, every day and getting paid for it so I put my um, application forward and I got an interview and I had that interview um with Christian, who's today's guest. So Christian is actually my boss. Uh, and so it's good to be have the shoe on the other foot today and I get to ask him all the questions. But I actually did that interview. Um, I was sat in a bathtub because we're in this like little chalet in like northern Slovakia, in the middle of nowhere. And the only place I could actually, there was no Wi-Fi. The only place I could get reception was in the bathroom of this place. So I actually did this interview sat in the bath. And luckily it went well and Christian offered me the job. And the rest is history. Um, one of the questions I did ask him during the interview is that basically Intrepid offers like local guides wherever they wherever possible. So if they're doing a tour in Italy, you'll have like, an Italian guide, uh, a guide in Romania. Uh, they'd have a Romanian guide and so on and so forth. And so I said to Christian, how does that work like, with myself being an English guide like, all over in many, in many different countries? And he says, well, the answer's easy, really. You just have to be better. And you have to be better than those local guides because they've got the advantage of being able to speak the language and they've got like an inherent knowledge that they've had from birth. So what he meant was that you just have to learn more and you, you have to be on point, basically. And he's, he's not wrong. So Christian now is actually the operation, operations manager for Europe, Russia and Ireland. But he started off as a tour leader and he led all over Europe. But... Um, 
he did a lot of tours in Italy, and he's like a, he's from Germany originally, so he was like a German guide in Italy, but he knows Italy like the back of his hand now, and we go into a bit of depth about that in the podcast. But I'm, I'm really grateful for Christian coming on. He's been to over a hundred countries. Like I said, he's he's the operations manager for Europe, Russia, and Iceland for the for the world's largest small group adventure company. So when it comes to travel, he lives and breathes it. He really does. And what's more, he's um he's a bit of a raconteur. He can he can definitely tell a story. You might have noticed already that this podcast is pushing around the two hour mark. And that's because Christian Christian can talk. He can tell a story. And I'm looking forward to you listening. If you are new to uh, the travel bubble, uh, the way we the podcast is free, but the way we like I like you to support it is by liking us on Facebook or Instagram and sharing the podcast with your friends who you think might like it. And what's more, if you've got an Apple phone, go on there, search Travel Bubble and give us a five-star rating because those those five-star ratings really do help. It helps the algorithms and it helps more people find the podcast and helps the podcast grow. So if one takeaway from this episode, if you want if you, if you like it and want to support us, give us that five-star rating. I'll be back at the end with some travel bubble film club and a bit of a chit chat but without further ado i'll jump into episode 20 the penguin account with my boss christian schubert hello christian thank you for coming on to travel bubble hi matty thank you very much for uh inviting me to that wonderful internet show how may, may i call that but um i've listened to uh, a couple of your podcasts already and i feel very very honored uh, that you have asked me and i'm very very happy that i'm uh, spending a bit of time with you today no it's a no-brainer to ask yourself i'm glad that you've come on but what why do you think i asked you to come on the podcast i have n- not an idea probably you know me a bit probably because i um was the one who thought that you could be a great tour leader <laughs> um i don't know maybe maybe that maybe because i'm in the industry for 15 years right now and i might be able to talk a little bit about traveling <laughs> yeah i think so yeah so for for those that don't know for all intents and purposes you're my boss you you work for intrepid peak you hired me and like Give me the give me the start as a tour leader. Um, what is like your official role in the in the company? Uh, the official role is called operations manager for Europe, Russia, and Iceland. If I'm asked what do you do in that role, then I say I don't really know. The thing is, if any shit happens somewhere on a trip in Europe, my phone rings. <laughs> yeah. That explains it properly. Yeah, well, luckily, touch wood, I, I've only had to speak with you on the trips once so far. Um, but it's always good to know that you, you've got the, the operations team there in the background, ensuring that everyone's safe and that the trips are running smoothly. Mm, no, it's it, it might probably sound uh, worse than what it actually uh, is because uh, tour leaders uh, usually know what they have to do and very often they just call to make sure they are doing the right thing and in more than 90 percent 
of phone calls I get, I completely agree with the actions the tour leaders do, and that makes me actually proud of all of them. That means it makes me proud of you as well, <laughs> uh, that uh, you're under normal circumstances do an excellent job and customers like it and um, they wouldn't come back if uh, we would do not a good work. Yeah. So how did you get started out into the travel business? I'm, I'm interested in this myself as well. Not like, personally. Oh, I have, before that, I have done something completely different. As you probably, well, you know, and the, the listeners will probably hear, uh, I'm German by birth, Bavarian to be precise. So we are those people in Germany who think they are at least 10% better than the rest of the country. <laughs> and um, I've been working in the sponsoring and events management department of Paulana Brewery. Uh, one of the breweries who deals with Oktoberfest. So Oktoberfest was one of the um, uh, key things I had to deal with. But after a couple of years and changing CEOs, the portfolio of things which I um, which I was responsible for uh, for got smaller and smaller. And so I decided I don't like that anymore, and I want to combine making money with uh, my biggest hobby, uh, which was traveling even at that time, um, found out that you're not making the big money when you're in the travel industry, but I didn't care because I was uh, I was really, really happy. Applied for a job as a tour leader with the before mentioned company and started as a tour leader in 2005 and uh, was leading pretty much everywhere in Europe and uh, then didn't want to stop tour leading because I enjoyed it. I love sharing uh, my knowledge and the history and the beauty of the places uh, with people from abroad and show them around the beautiful parts of pretty much entire Europe. And uh, then there was a position advertised as a, a deputy operations manager. And I said, well, I'll show them and uh, apply for the job so that later, when I'm ready for that, um, they uh, remember me and I might have a better chance to get a job. Yeah, yeah. And for some weird reason, they decided they want me immediately. And it was about, well, do you take that job or do you continue leading? Didn't know when the next leading job and or the next office job came along. So I decided, yeah, well... Uh, take the job and um, well that's about 13 14 years ago now and I was then responsible as a deputy or an assistant for pretty much everywhere in Europe until a couple of years ago when I then got promoted and now I'm looking after the operations in pretty much everywhere in Europe and in Russia and in Iceland and have a great team working with me. Yeah. So did you, when you went like transition from a leader to like the office staff, was it hard, like not being on the road as much? Well, it's not a rule in the company, but we actually have it written in our contracts that everyone who works in operations has to be prepared to run trips in emergency situations, etc. I, 
as whenever possible, a year, usually uh, complete emergency step-ins. If something something happens, like a family emergency with a leader, or uh, knock on wood, uh, somebody uh, injures themselves, you suddenly need a tour, tour leader within six or eight hours notice. And you all know tour leaders are on the on the road a lot of uh, the time. If you don't find somebody, somebody needs to come and pick up customers if they don't have a tour leader. That means I had a phone call once at eight o'clock in the morning and uh, was based in Venice at that time. And I had a leaderless tour group in Naples. I booked a flight ticket, uh, flew down to Naples and had lunch at 12 o'clock in the oldest pizza place uh, of Italy with a group of 12 people I've never known before. And three days later, the substitution leader was there and uh, that's it. So uh, to answer your question, no, I don't miss it because I'm not going without it. So over the last yeah. 10, 12 years in the, in the office, I had at least one trip a year which I could lead as a as a tour leader and it's it's absolutely fabulous to get back into the into that feeling and this is how somebody who works in the office realizes what work the tour leaders actually do on the ground because there are those questions from your customers there are those hiccups or the uh, the gelateria in Italy, which you knew from 10 years before, well, it doesn't exist in that place anymore and you have to find things. So yeah. um, I think it's it's still one of the best jobs you can have in, um, in your life. And if you then can have it part-time and have a bit of a settled down lifestyle but still can do it that's the best thing yeah, the best um, for me so I, I wouldn't want to change my job at all so where are you right now you're in germany i'm in germany yeah i'm in uh, in bavaria right at the austrian right at the austrian border i'm based here um work in a home office even in non-COVID uh, times, simply because um, if your work area is all around one and a half continents, there's no way you need to be based in a particular place. So I'm in the, in the middle of Europe and wherever I have to go, it doesn't take me long to get there. Yeah, absolutely. But you, you lived in uh, Italy for quite a long time, correct? Yeah, that's true. During my time as a deputy operations manager, I was um, responsible for managing all the tour leaders. And um, for some reason, I ended up in Italy doing that with first the entire Western Europe and then concentrated uh, once the company got bigger on dealing with uh, Italy, Switzerland, France and that uh, and that area and over those 10 years I spent time in Italy I uh, ended up learning Italian uh, to an which I never knew beforehand to an extent that my Italian friends and colleagues now can speak in Italian and keep secrets from me so they have to switch into their local dialects <laughs> otherwise I 
uh, was able to find out what they're talking behind my back, which was quite funny uh, <laughs> at times. Yeah, so your language skills, you've got obviously you've got the German, you've got Italian, you've got French. Like, was it, was it lang- does it come into easy to you or do you just work hard at it? Um, no, it's, it's not uh, hard working. I, well, obviously German, German by birth, despite my friend said, because I'm from Bavaria, I'm not even speaking proper German <laughs> because it's kind of a, kind of a dialect. Um, but uh, German, English, French in school, Italian learning by doing, and then with all the traveling, you find out that Italian and Spanish is relatively close. So I would never say I speak Spanish, uh, but I understand a lot, which uh, makes it a lot easier if you travel in in Western or Latin American countries, etc. I've I've lived in the Czech Republic for for two years, and I found out I'm absolutely bloody terrible with Slavic languages. I can count to ten, and I can order breakfast, and I can go shopping in a Slavic country, but that's it. <laughs> uh, but with uh, with uh, Roman languages, not a problem. You guess your yeah. things, but Latin it helps. Yeah. Okay. So. Um- when did you first like realize that traveling was your hobby and your passion? Hmm, good question. I think I got the travel bug when I was 19 and I was almost blown. Uh, I was on a camping holiday in the US. We pitched our tent at the cliff at Monument Valley. If you if if people are older and remember those Marlboro cigarette advertisements with those wooden uh, with those big rocks uh, which show American prairie, we were exactly there, but didn't think about that there might be a thunderstorm and our tent pitched on the very top of the rock was almost blown away, despite almost been blown down a mountain uh, this was I was 19 at that time and this was a an encounter where I said I want to have more of that and uh, then during university time there wasn't a lot of uh, traveling and um, when I finished university and uh, earned my first money then I decided I want to spend it for uh, for going on holidays, and then it slowly came up. But the big boost was when I started working as a tour leader and said, I want to do that for work as well as for uh, for leisure. Okay. What were um, uh, your like childhood holidays like in Bavaria? Did you was it are you very close to Austria? Were you staying in Germany yeah. or getting around Europe? Mm, no, the, the thing is, I'm in the. If you look at the map, I'm uh, my home is pretty much in the far bottom right corner of uh, Germany. And other German friends, uh, friends say uh, you live at the ass of the country. Well, if you live in Frankfurt, in the center of the country, it's true. But uh, in winter, I drive one and a half hours to the ski resorts in the Austrian mountains takes four hours by car to the Italian Adriatic coast, takes four and a half hours to Lake Garda to have Italian feeling uh, pure, takes three hours to go to Vienna. So despite I'm in the furthest corner of Germany, I'm 
pretty much in the in the center of Europe, and that was childhood childhood holidays. We went to to Austria for long weekends yeah. to the Austrian Austrian mountains, or uh, we had family holidays at Lake Garda in Italy. I have um, relatives uh, who who are Croatian, and they had a holiday home at the Croatian Adriatic. So my first big holiday was when I was two, going to the Adriatic Islands. And oh, cool. uh, but for for us that was that's destinations where other people go on a holiday and fly six, eight, ten hours to get there. Well, we drove six hours and we were there, so that was relatively easy and it was cheap because we could use the family holiday home. That's cool. That's a good. Yeah. So you you've always been like well located to get to some top destinations. Well, it's the let let's say it like uh, like that. A home is located really convenient uh, for that because uh, where there are other people go on holidays. If you call that area or a home or call an area which is close uh, to that home, it makes things easier. I don't have to fly to go skiing. I'll open the window, see beautiful weather at 7 o'clock in the morning, pack my stuff, uh, drive to the ski resort and finish by 4 o'clock in the afternoon and I'm home for dinner. I don't need to pay an expensive uh, hotel yeah. or anything like that. I just go there and... Uh, that's the same for summers and uh, winters, and makes it uh, makes it really great to uh, have grown up in in an area like that. That's great. So yeah, so Christian, thank you for coming on to Travel Mobile today. Are you familiar with the concept? You can choose like three countries to go to for the rest of your life. Yeah. Was it an easy choice for you? No, it was. If I may use that word, bloody difficult because, <laughs> um, well, you you might find a destination or a uh, or a country uh, which is, yeah, on a stereotypical list of dream countries to go to, and then you have other places which, uh, on the first look, uh, don't look that they are dream destinations, um, but they are absolutely uh, fascinating and uh, I thought yeah do do I pick this one or that one or that one or, or this and then I thought well I pick one that was the the most recent country I was was one where I actually never thought never ever thought of going to and then I came back and started raving about it and uh, a lot of people might not even know that this is a country. If they know that this is a country, they might not know where it is. But one of the most fascinating places on earth for me where I would, despite this, it's not that big, I would always go back is Djibouti. Okay, so your travel, travel bubble destination number one is Djibouti. Exactly, it's Djibouti. Okay. And uh, yeah, do you know where Djibouti is? Is it East Africa? 
Well, the candidate gets a hundred points. Uh, I would say <laughs> you're you're quite you're quite right. Uh, Djibouti is a tiny little country which has about the, eight or nine hundred thousand inhabitants, and it's surrounded by Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Yemen. So apparently, it's surrounded by the some of the apparently most dangerous countries in the world. Yeah. So how, mm -hmm. how, how did you end up there then on, on holiday? Um, the person who's actually guilty of that, you know him, it's my boss. Okay. My, my boss, Chris, said to me, you do know that you still have six weeks of annual leave left over and you cannot take it you need to actually use that, so go on holidays. And I was booked on a holiday to Ethiopia, which I wanted to go for years already, and uh, still had two weeks of annual leave left, and he said, you have to take it. <laughs> and then I, then I looked at what's close to Ethiopia. Well, there's places like the Sudan or Central African Republic, which doesn't really appeal to me, despite they might be quite nice. And then I found that expedition-style trip, uh, which was which was advertised going to Djibouti. And it's right next to Ethiopia. So Djibouti is Ethiopia's harbor. And I uh, thought, so if you're there already, transportation to go from Addis Ababa to Djibouti uh, costs only 100 euros. And as you probably know, we get a bit of a discount for trips, which we do with our own company. I took advantage of that discount and it didn't cost that much. So I decided, good, well, I do not know anything about Djibouti. I'm going there. Yeah, okay. And, and then I went. And you were pleasantly surprised, obviously, to include it as your destination here. Um, well, obviously, because I'm German, I need to live up to the stereotype that Germans are prepared. So I was looking for literature. I was looking online as well, but uh, with my age, I grew up in the uh, as a generation which reads proper books like the ones who open. I don't do e-reading. Yeah, real books. I need a proper <laughs> book. And I, I tried to, uh, try to get a book um, like a, a travel guidebook, Djibouti. Yeah. Bloody hell, there isn't anything. <laughs> there aren't any books about Djibouti. Nothing. The closest you can get to is a guidebook of Ethiopia, uh, which then has Djibouti uh, included. And then you start reading and everything which they have in there is probably in a 750-page book about Ethiopia. You've got 30 pages Djibouti. Yeah. And I said, you idiot, you're going to that country. The 30, the 30 pages in that book, there's, there's nothing. Um, in hindsight, I think out of those 30 pages in the book, we visited and saw 28 and a half of it. <laughs> so on an 11-day trip through Djibouti, the country is not very big. Um, I saw 95% of what's worth being put in a guidebook, and we drove on 
I would say 90% of the uh, things which can call the road because a lot of the point-to-point -point connection are not roads. Uh, so you've got, you've got streets or gravel roads where gravel is actually the beautified version of it. You have um, rocks which have half a meter uh, in diameter on the on the road and you need to get out of your car and <laughs> shovel it aside and you can <laughs> continue uh, up the street. So preparation was, oh my God, what have you done? And um, then you arrive at an airport which is which dubs as an airbase uh, where you have uh, the Americans, the French, the Japanese, the Germans and the Italians stationed. Okay. And uh, from there, uh, they uh, coordinate their humanitarian and uh, also military operations in the area. And there's a lot of area around where uh, those operations need to be done. Yeah, yeah. So Djibouti as such is probably one of the safest countries because put on top of that a Chinese airbase uh, 40 kilometers down the road. Then you've got all the superpowers apart from the Russians in the area uh, who have uh, military bases and the country as such is one of the safest places I've ever been in my life. Okay. And yeah, like, um, you, you have this mm -hmm. like... Um like there's this like stereotype of like oh it's it's going to be dangerous going somewhere like that and like you say there's these countries around it so but it was actually safe yeah it is for me it's for me it's perfectly safe the the most dangerous the most dangerous is probably the locals driving in the afternoons <laughs> um yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I don't know whether you've heard about chat or cat. Oh, the leaves. The leaves, uh, which is the the uh, the number one pastime for uh, for uh, for the people in that area. So in Djibouti, uh, as well as in in Ethiopia, they grow it. But every every day between one and two in the afternoon two trucks with chat leaves and, and chat, chat are, are leaves. And if you chew them, you get into a slight, uh, how do I say that? It's not that you would be stoned. I haven't tried it, but it gets you in a bit of a, a cool, um, relaxed yeah. uh, feeling. And between 1 and 2 p.m. in the afternoon, the tracks from Ethiopia, where that grass or the leaves grow, arrive to Djibouti and then they are distributed. And then they are sold by the so-called chat ladies. They sit around little old school desks, how we had them in Europe in the early 1900s, where you can open uh, open the lid yeah, and yeah. underneath uh, they have they have their, their, their chat leaves. And then predominantly the men go and buy those leaves and chew them. And since they are in a kind of a trance, uh, very relaxed, uh, their reaction time is not really that good anymore. And uh, 
also their productivity goes rapidly down after two o'clock because they are uh, chewing those leaves and but they still drive their cars and you don't want to encounter a very relaxed slightly drugged local in their cars um, when they are speeding ahead with 80 or 90 kilometers per hour on a road where you would yourself only drive about 30 or 40. Yeah. Well, I, I hear, I, I associate them leaves with like the Somali pirate. I know quite yeah. often like they, they're, they're so addictive that a lot of the money that they make from like the piracy or like uh, the ships, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll spend the majority of it on, on these chat leaves because they're so addictive that then they need to feed that habit. That's what it comes to my mind could could easily could easily be Djibouti as a country and also the neighboring parts of Ethiopia the the uh, the ethnicities uh, I don't want to call them tribes the ethnicities who live there are Somali so Djibouti is half Afar and half Somali right uh, and Somali the Somalian border is well 25 kilometers outside the um, um, outside the capital so um, we actually drove there so uh, there is a picture existing uh, of the Somali border a kind of illegal picture because obviously you're not supposed to take pictures of any official building anywhere in Djibouti even if it is the most rotten down <laughs> um, former uh, from a city hall you're not allowed to take a picture so that was from the distance but at least I've got a picture uh, from Somalia and it's in that area it, it didn't look dangerous it's the it's the most coordinated area of Somalia over there so this is far away from where uh, where the civil war over the areas yeah. and um, but uh, yeah so no, but that's the that's the most dangerous I've encountered yeah. in the country. So what's like the so some of the highlights that you see when you're in, in the Djibouti? Uh, that's something which uh, I was most 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 surprised about it because uh, geologically nature wise, Djibouti has a diversity which is probably only matched by Iceland. Imagine Iceland in hot. Right. Djibouti is the hottest country in the world, and the low temperatures in July in the night are at around 32 degrees. That's the oh. low. It doesn't get colder than 32 degrees. Day ever, daily average is between 45 and 47 degrees. So no touristic activity in Djibouti from March until October because it's simply too hot. Wow, okay. In, uh, in, I was there in January 2020 before uh, the pandemic started. And we had... Uh, in the lowlands, nighttime temperatures of around, of around 20 and the daytime highs were 33, 34, 35. And then it's um, the place where the, uh, the Great Rift Valley, East African Rift Valley, has its northern end. 
Okay. That means you have tectonic plates, the Arabian, uh, the Indian Ocean, and the African plate come together in that area. So it's geologically very new, uh, seismic active. So you've got um, volcanoes, you've got earthquakes, uh, but not too not too dangerous ones because some tectonic plates are uh, going away They're from each other. Away from each other, yeah, yeah. They're moving away, and uh, so there's no not three coming together. Two are coming together, and the third one is going away. So it's not that uh, it's not that dangerous from a geological point of view. But you've got all those all those rocks. And uh, obviously, we, we walked up to the summit of a volcano, uh, which, well, other people might not find that uh, impressive because the volcano is a whopping 320 meters high. Looks a bit better if you tell people that you started at minus 155 meters <laughs> because Djibouti hosts the lowest point of Africa. Okay. And it's uh, comfortably and conveniently located in one of the most picturesque saline lakes uh, which I've ever seen in my life. So the lowest place is Lac Asal, um, translates kind of into the salty lake, which is perfectly true because it's bloody salty. <laughs> Over there, it's in a, it's in a depression. And um, a couple of square kilometers big, uh, surrounded by um, surrounded by mountains and dark blue waters, and you can float in it because obviously you can't dive because the, the water is so yeah, salty. Okay, and this is um, and uh, there is no infrastructure around. So if you want to see that. You go there and you take your camping equipment. And there is absolutely no facilities whatsoever around. No running water, water no nothing. And you you bring all your stuff and you have your, your local helpers. You can only drive in four by fours because the roads are otherwise impassable. And uh, then, then you're there and you walk around and look around the... Uh, the little hill and in the shade of the hill you uh, pitch your well not your tents more your less more or less your um, military cot beds yeah. where you're gonna sleep and uh, you go around the corner and what do you see a caravan a real caravan <laughs> so yeah you know caravans out of out of Lawrence of Arabia out of movies out of uh, out of history documentations, yeah, yeah. but you would not expect a caravan. Um, at least I didn't. Maybe they they are existent in other places, but there was a caravan of Ethiopian and Afari people who go down to the lake, cut down uh, with their bare hands and knives and axes, cut down the salt from the lake. So they were mining the salt on the surface of the okay. lakes, of the lake, and then they uh, they loaded it on their on their camels. And the next morning, so they usually arrive in the afternoon. Then they work until 10 p.m., go to sleep, and the next morning they take their camels and take a three-day journey and go back to. 
southern Ethiopia, where they supply southern Ethiopian people uh, with uh, the salt, just like they did four or five hundred uh, years ago. So that's century-old traditions, which you which you see, and they're not staged for for tourists like what you can find in yeah. other places. It's uh, it's absolutely fascinating and with um, uh, with an amazing uh, backdrop. Um, it's it's just it's one of the places where you stand there or you sit down and just sigh and oh, I don't want to go away from there. It's just it's it's almost kitschy tacky how you want to call it, but it's. It's absolutely amazing. Okay. That's that's one of the places, and then you've got uh, other places look like the moon because there's volcanic uh, volcanic chimneys and the vol- uh, uh, the mineral filled steam created twenty meter high chimneys, yeah. and it looks like Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Well, they they actually filmed the 1969 Planet of the Apes movie there. Oh, okay. Okay, mm-hmm. I, can, I can picture that then. So um, what would be, if you had to, you could only do one activity in Djibouti, what would it be? Would it be visiting the, the Salt Lake? No. no. Uh, salt, Lake's a, salt Lake's a must when you're, uh, when you're there. And the mountains are a must because you have geological... Uh, you have rock formations in different colors, so yellow next to blue, next to red, where all the minerals come out. But okay. the, the absolute number one must-do activity in Djibouti is actually going into the water. Um, the Red Sea, Djibouti is at the entrance of the Red Sea, and people might know that the Red Sea is... Uh, a paradise for divers and snorkelers because they have uh, coral reefs over there. That continues down to Djibouti as well. And Djibouti is, well, surrounds the Bay of Djibouti. And this is one of the very, very few places on earth where you find whale sharks in their their mating season. So whale shark is... um, Unlike all the other sharks, a whale shark is not dangerous because I would call a whale shark being a vegetarian. They don't, uh, they they are not predators. Predators they don't hunt. They are just enormously big, ten to twelve meters long, and they don't mind if there is other um, animals like human beings close to close to them. So. You can actually swim with them okay. uh, if if they are if they are there. Um, maybe there should be a little bit more regulation. They start doing it because everyone can actually go there and uh, start doing it. But there is an organization which puts that into the right tracks. And then you can see whale sharks. And if you don't have the whale sharks, there is brilliant uh, coral reefs just 20 meters from the shoreline away. Where if you only want to go snorkeling, you find uh, an intact and living coral reef, uh, which is accessible without uh, a lot of uh, preparation. So either you can do it from the beach or you... Uh, just need a small need a small boat, but 
in season, which is November to January, whale sharks are around. And um, if you then see them, well, you can swim with dolphins, you can swim with seals, etc. But they are two meters or three meters. You have a whale shark. A whale shark is 12 or 13 meters. So yeah. that's 50 feet. Have you tried swim, uh, swimming next <laughs> to something which is 50 feet long? Even I am small with that. And this is, this is something which you, which you won't forget. So for me, that's my number one activity I would do. No guarantee that you can see them. We saw one a little bit in the distance, but even 200, uh, 200 meters away, it was huge, very yeah. huge. So uh, is diving one of your passions? Is that one of your hobbies? No, not at all. I don't. I don't dive because I get. I don't know whether claustrophobic is the right uh, a, a word for it, but I don't like that. I love going snorkeling, and I can get carried away uh, by with with snorkeling because if I see colors and the beauty beauty of nature, it's just beautiful, and you float away. So I love snorkeling, and. Uh, that was one of the best places where I've uh, where I've been. Whenever possible, I try to rent a, a mask and get some get some fins and do it once or twice on on holidays. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah I remember. I, I went to I went to Egypt and I was like it was like a resort holiday just like to get away from back when mm -hmm. I was working when I had mm -hmm. my real. I went to Egypt and I went snorkeling off the edge of the resort and it was just amazing. Like the fish that we see in the, the coral reef. And I was, I just didn't realize that that wasn't like the norm. I'd been spoiled by that experience. And then mm -hmm. I went over to Australia and did like the Great Barrier Reef. And it, the Great Barrier Reef, because of like, I don't know, it's just, it failed, it paled in comparison to the, the little snorkeling that I did off the coast of Egypt. Mm -hmm. No, obviously it depends on it depends on where you go. And um, I had whenever it's possible, I try to do it. So I I haven't been to Australia uh, to the Great Barrier Reef, but I've done it in the Philippines and uh, Djibouti, which is the Red Sea. I've been snorkeling in in the Caribbean um, off uh, the coast of Belize. And uh, it is it is beautiful, but the, the the colors we had there, and and the um, uh, the multitude and the diversity uh, of fish uh, was fantastic. And then you uh, then you swim around, and suddenly something big comes along. And what do you have? A turtle, oh, cool. or turtle or turtles, whatever the swimming kind of uh, <laughs> uh, of turtles of about a meter a meter length and uh, you watch them and you follow them uh, for almost an hour and then you look up and find out that uh, the beach of the hotel where you're staying is almost a kilometer away and you need <laughs> to get back so um, I, uh, give me the beauty of nature and I can I can get carried carried away, and that's why why I said this is one of the surprising uh, uh, country on the pick list because you get things which you have never ever 
uh, expected uh, beforehand and okay. so close together yeah what would be your culinary highlight of uh, Djibouti? Is there anything that sticks out in your head, like a particular food or a particular uh, there isn't diet? Any. Next... <laughs> uh, the, the, thing, the thing is, uh, when I when I looked at at the, the the previous podcast, everyone was talking about food, and I thought by myself. What the hell are you talking about? Food in uh, in Djibouti. The most talked <laughs> one was so-called Djibouti sauce because uh, they do a kind of a, which resembles most a French ratatouille. So um, tomato-based soup with uh, not soup with chili and vegetables in, and this is what a Djiboutian eats with pretty much everything but their staple is rice over there and a little bit of meat and vegetables and that's it uh, culinary highlights is the seafood and anything they cook yemenite style uh, yemen is just 50 kilometers across uh, the red sea and there's a lot of yemeni people uh, living um, living in Djibouti and that the cooking traditions are coming over, but uh, it's not necessarily a destination where you go for the for the culinary highlights. But okay. uh, they cook uh, Arabic style food with uh, with Indian uh, influence as well. Okay, so your first um, choice, Djibouti. What would be your travel bubble destination number two? South Africa. Okay. Uh, why South Africa? Um, the, the, I thought you would ask that question, and I don't have an answer. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I just can tell you that I, since I was there the first time in two thousand and one, I've, I've been there five times now. Right. And uh, the third time I was there, I took friends of mine there to show them the beauty of the country, which I love. And the fifth time was when I took my old parents and my dad never, ever wanted to go abroad because I'm not going into an airplane and flying for 12 hours. I'm not a stupid idiot. <laughs> and, uh, well, me made him go. My mom told him, so you either can come or you can stay at home, but your son has reserved uh cars and accommodation and all that already. I think it's the combination of, uh, of everything. It's the, the, the quality of life, knowing that uh, South Africa is very diverse. And as a Western tourist, you don't necessarily go to those areas which are more rural or more uh, don't misunderstand me when I said that there is a, a, a whiter South Africa and there's a blacker South Africa, a more traditional um, one. And uh, for somebody who has never, ever traveled to Africa, like my parents, I yeah. think it was a, it, it's a, 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 the best place to start to start going there. So my first visit to Africa was to South Africa. And I've been to Africa 13 or 14 times since. 
Right. Uh, I've been to countries like Malawi, uh, Uganda, Madagascar, Ethiopia, um, and I've I've seen the more uh, uh, more authentic Africa. But to start uh, to start it. I think South Africa is the right balance uh, where the culture shock for a for a Western tourist is not that uh, is not that big. And if okay. you learn the history and uh, walk across the country with an with an open eye, then uh, South Africa can give you uh, give you a lot of um, a, a lot back to. Uh, for history, for nature, for culinary highlights, because as I said before, Djibouti doesn't have them. South Africa has a lot, okay, a lot of them, and um, um, there's places I uh, I go to where I know my uh, I know my restaurants, I know the places, I know the beaches, uh, I I know the national parks where to. Uh, we had to go. I'm by far not an expert. I love the mentality of uh, South Africans. Um, the, the there is the, the if somebody has ever been to to the Zulu people, uh, see with what uh, happiness and joy of life they live. Uh, they live their lives. It's absolutely absolutely fantastic. And um, that's why I, it made the list for me. Yeah. Diversity, friendliness of the people. And it comes not necessarily as an expensive country as well. Okay. So what sort of activities are you going to do when you're in South Africa? What, what, what do you do? Um, I'm more... Uh, I, I love nature. I love animals and... Uh, Plants, etc. I also love photography. So, South Africa for me is first a destination to go on uh, safaris, and as such, with keeping money uh, with conservation areas, uh, giving the country the chance to protect uh, endangered wildlife. For example, um, uh, rhinoceros. Uh, which is endangered because of the stupid idea of rhino horn making yeah. you more whatever. Um, money can go into the protection of uh, wildlife and protection of uh, of nature. Obviously, I would never go hunting there or uh, or destroy anything. But if you um, if you go and help the the local organizations which uh, which take care of the environment, take care of the national parks, etc., then you can do um, your small little part um, towards the conservation of the planet. Okay. And, yeah. Is there any particular, if you're going to go to South Africa for safari, is there any national park that you'd recommend someone to visit or reserve? Mm. Um, there's there is the the big one is obviously Kruger uh, National Park, which has now joined forces with some privately owned reserves and uh, national park on on the other side of the border in Mozambique. That's ridiculously huge. So the park is more than 
300 kilometers from north to south. And you actually need to change places. Smaller, smaller ones are uh, Schlushlui National Park, which is the hotspot for rhino breeding. Okay. Um, they they use it for they have a surplus of rhino, so they actually export the endangered rhinos, rhinoceroses into the areas where they are already extinct. Okay. To mix new population, if you have a, um, a Kenyan, there's, no, there's not a lot of black rhinos in Kenya. I think it is black rhinos. Maybe I'm mixing them up. Um, and there's only very few females. And obviously, if you breed them with, your, uh, with their brothers, uh, the outcome is... Uh, slightly mentally ill to say it like that so they need to mix uh, mix their genes a bit so they fly in uh, south african rhinos and uh, as such uh, rhinoceroses are more productive and they can increase the population in other countries on the on okay. the entire continent yeah uh, which is uh, which is absolutely fantastic and there's um, some animals which are, I would, I would say, you call it habituated. They know that there is uh, that there is a safari car around, and since a rhino has a very bad eyesight, uh, they can hear very well, they can smell very well, but they cannot see at all. Uh, we had one rhino once uh, which needed to scratch his neck, and uh, took the how do you call that in English? The bumper, you know, the the, the big one in the front of your safari yeah, car. The, the, the I don't jar. know what it is. Uh, the bull bars. The, the bull bars. Yeah, exactly the bull bars. You call them. Yeah. So he thought uh, he needed to scratch his neck at the bull bar, and uh, if you remember the extensions of a rhinoceros, that's very big, and if the neck is at the bull bar. The horn is pretty much where you sit. That means you're, <laughs> sitting in your, you're sitting in your car, the rhino is scratching the neck, and right next to you in a distance where you can touch it is a one-meter-long rhinoceros horn <laughs> which goes up and down uh, next to you. And that was one of those very, very rare situations where world got me speechless. You know me a bit. <laughs> Speechless doesn't happen very often, and uh, <laughs> but I think this explains why uh, why South Africa is is a is a must do, and Schlushlui uh, National Park is uh, is a highlight for me, or name Ado Elephant National Park. Well, guess what you see there? Lots of lots of elephants, and you can be caught in an elephant herd because you look out of the window to your right side because it's the first elephant your dad sees yeah. and he's absolutely fascinated and wants to take pictures what well, we all did not realize that we were in the middle of the path the elephant herd took and about 30 seconds later we were surrounded by an entire herd of about 25 uh, animals who were looking at us and believe it or not there was an elephant trunk who reached into our car and wanted to steal my dad's banana <laughs> and um, yeah that's uh, 
absolutely fascinating what encounters uh, you can you can have uh, with the animal kingdom over there. Did your dad enjoy the whole holiday then? How did he find his first experience with Africa? He was absolutely thrilled. Uh, decided that he wants to make a best of a little booklet. So we did a we did a small booklet which was the size of a wallet, uh, which he could put into his back pocket, oh, and wherever wherever he went after after that holiday, he had that booklet in the back pocket to start raving to everybody who wanted to hear it or not uh, <laughs> about the fantastic uh, holiday with fantastic food, drink, animals, nature, whatever he was expecting. He was so, so glad that um, that he was convinced by the rest of his family and his best friends uh, to go on that trip. So for him, it was... Uh, well, he's been he's been sailing in the Caribbean and in the Seychelles. It's not that he only went on holidays to uh, to Austria or to to Italy. So he knows a little bit of the world. But this was something which uh, which he loved from the first to the um, to the last minute. Oh, good. So, what would be your highlight for the country then? If you're going to go there, what would be the must-do activity? <laughs> Um, the country is the country is full of highlights. Uh, if you're into wine, uh, some of the best wine regions in in the world are in South Africa, and they're combined. You you find a winery, which usually not all of them, but half of them has a a beautiful restaurant in the vineyards attached to it. Yeah. So you go there, do wine tasting, stay for uh, stay for lunch, have a four-course meal, which is Michelin star level, enjoy everything. And the problem is how do you get home because you drank a liter of wine <laughs> between uh, the two of you and your, your home is about 40 or 50 kilometers away. That means you stay there for another couple of hours, drink water, enjoy the scenery, and then go home. <laughs> and um, nature, whether it's it's the lush countryside uh, along the along the east coast, which is tropical, or the or the deserts uh, towards the towards the north, towards Namibia, you've got um, an absolute uh, vast variety of things you can uh, you can do. Uh, and and this is what makes it a, a general highlight for me because it's the diversity. You've got so many different things to do. If you play golf, fantastic um, destination because prices are relatively low. Some of the most beautiful and best golf courses in the world to be found. If you want to go um, swimming with sharks, well, South Africa is the place to swim with yeah. sharks. And now, I mean, those are kind of sharks where you're going to be in the cage and the sharks are around you. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's there's no particular highlight, but everyone, I would say every single person in the, way, uh, in the world, uh, if they have 
any interest, they find uh, something in South Africa which pleases them. Everyone. Okay. I wouldn't know anybody who wouldn't find you uh, who wouldn't find something which they love in no, you, South Africa. You've sold it to me. So, what would be your culinary highlight of South Africa? Culinary highlight. There's. Um, it's a it's a, uh, South Africa is a melting pot. So you've got uh, a Dutch past. You've got um, uh, British heritage, and uh, because of that, you have influences from Malaysia and from India. Because there were a lot of a uh, lot of people from those areas which emigrated uh, to South Africa in the late 1800s or early 1900s to work there in the diamonds or in the gold fields uh, okay. or in trade, etc. Uh, so there is a, they have lots of cattle and they farm quite good beef. So not necessarily a paradise for vegetarians, but meat lovers find excellent uh, meats over there plus the quality of the food and then the mixture with the different kinds of herbs and spices from traditional African, European influenced and um, and as well uh, Malaysian or Indian, uh, Indian cuisine. The typical South African would be most proud of their braai, yeah. which an Australian would call the Barbie and the best thing is as a German, because we know how to make the best barbecues in the world. <laughs> no, that's a joke. Watching a South African and an Australian argue about the fact who makes the better barbecue. And um, I think barbecue um, along a beach in in South Africa with uh, borevors with their particular sausage, yeah. uh, sweet potatoes, baked potatoes, lots of fresh salads. It's not a, a, a particular dish, but the, 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 feel, the feeling uh, you have uh, uh, when, when there is that smorgasbord of, uh, of good things and um, a beer or a glass of wine, uh, in your hands, that's for me what I what I love best. And when I was there with my parents, I think we had it every third or fourth day. We had kind of a a braai uh, yeah. for dinner. Okay, that sounds perfect. Is there anything else you'd like to say about South Africa before we move on? Um, there would be so much to say about uh, about South Africa, but the, um, the people I met there uh, were all amazing, uh, and it it didn't actually matter whether they were uh, British descendant, were speaking Africans, whether they were Sulu or um, Kosa or any other. Uh, people from over there, whoever I met, I met friendly and helpful people. Uh, it's a, a country I recommend to everyone to to travel to because literally everything is uh, is amazing. 
Okay. So we've had Djibouti, we've had South Africa. What would be your travel bubble destination number three? Closer to home, huh? I would say since I since I lived there for ten years, I would have to say Italy. Okay. Uh, if I need to be a bit more precise, the north of Italy, despite the south is equally equally beautiful and equally worth uh, going there. But uh, if you would make me, and that's probably closest to to your initial. Uh, a question where would you want to live if you have only those three countries then yeah. yeah after 10 years living there and not living there anymore there is some things which i miss and like um, um, i i know on the um we you when we go to like a new place as a tour leader there's sometimes there's some guides available from like say a guide to like Bucharest that we can read to get the highlights quickly if we're going to a mm-hmm. place we've never been to before. And I've I know although I do I've never done a tour in Italy, I've read some of your um guides in Italy. I've read your Venice one and it was mm-hmm. so so in depth and such like passion and such local knowledge that you put into that like overview of Venice. Um like I'm glad that you've you've chosen Italy because I'd I'd like to hear more you talk about it more. Mm-hmm. Well, it's um, well knowing where you've been leading and having had that in the interview between the two of uh, two of us. Uh, if you work for a company which sells to their customers a local leader, then you and me were in, you and me were in the same situation because I was a German leading in Italy, so I'm <laughs> not local and. I don't look Italian. You look more Italian than I do. <laughs> and you're in the same situation, being a Brit leading in Eastern Europe and going to places like Romania, Moldova, or the country which doesn't exist. Um, I think to convince the customers that we know what we are doing, uh, we need to be better than the locals. I don't say that we are better than our local Italian or Romanian or whatever colleagues, but we work harder or we have to work harder. And for that reason, we read everything about uh, the destinations we are going to that we can give the knowledge to other people. And why not writing why not writing that down? It's just funny if you have new Italian colleagues who have never been to Venice in their life before because they're from south of Rome and they don't go to the uh, to the north because you can go there when you're old. You go abroad, you go to Vietnam, <laughs> you go to Africa. But why should I go to Venice? There's so many so many tourists over there and it's in the same country where I live. I don't have to do that. And then you have... Uh, a southern Italian colleague who asks you, can you help me with taking customers through uh, through Venice because I've never been there and it's it's funny but I love I love doing it and Venice is uh, I moved away there in, in end of 2019 um, it might be tacky and uh, Venice is probably the most stereotype loaded uh, place in in Europe, but 
And and I've been to uh, to the city center on the island two hundred, three hundred times, yeah. and uh, half of that taking customers around, and it's still fascinating and amazing me every single time I'm going there because it's so unique. Where else in the world do you have a city of that size built on stilts into a swampy lagoon? Nowhere. So, and and then they built palaces and as rotten they look from the outside, as beautiful they are decorated uh, inside and uh, and you're blown up, blown away by by the decoration and uh, carpets big as a wall uh, woven in the 17th century and that's that's just your living room decoration yeah and um, combined with with uh, yeah Italian lifestyle and, and things what I've learned over the uh, over the years after a couple of years I was allowed to complain uh, about Italy because Italians do, do not allow a foreigner to complain about <laughs> Italy because Italians complain oh, that's a stereotype but they really complain about everyone everything and all the time about their country, but a foreigner is not allowed to do that. <laughs> it's, it's simply an absolute no-go. And I understand them 100% because I would not be uh, happy if a Brit or an Italian comes along and complains about, uh, complains about Germany. And I wasn't allowed to complain about everything. Since I lived in Italy for a number of years, I was allowed to complain about the things I suffer as well. So uh, uh, garbage collection, which is not uh, well enough uh, organized, or the time you spend uh, at the local administration uh, offices to do to do things here and 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 there. That's uh, that's something I'm allowed to complain, but I'm not allowed. <laughs> complain about Italian politics or Italisms um, okay. uh, in itself. On the other hand, what, what, what I love there is uh, when you get beyond the, 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 the tourist local border and, uh, for example, you have to sign your, um, your rental contract uh, for your apartment then you need um, a tax number. Um, and uh, But to get a tax number, you need a registered address. You need an address, yeah. Uh, you're like, so like Kafka. You, it's, it's like, it's like <laughs> a dog who wants to bite his tail because you don't get the one without the other. And uh, obviously it's recognized as a as a problem and then the the guy at the agency asked me so do you know where you want to live i said here's the contract i just need to insert the text number there and then we can sign it and stamp it and then i go then said good <coughs> i will generate you a tax number under that particular address but because i'm not allowed to give it to you i am 
uh, I'd ask you to come back tomorrow morning at quarter to nine before we officially open and go directly to me with the signed and stamped document. So I file that all together in one and then you get your tax number and you get your signed uh, contract. So uh, there is obstacles in the bureaucracy, but uh, Italians always find a solution around that obstacle. And that's uh, absolutely amazing and, and helps you. And if you, if you know that, then you uh, find your way around uh, bureaucracy, which in other parts of the world might even be bigger than in Italy. That said to Italian friends who always complain, your country is not the worst in the world. <laughs> so um, where would be your highlights? I know it's like a, a big country. You've been, you've been around a lot there. What would you, if, you, if you'd recommend someone to go to Italy for the first time, where, where would you say? They have to go here. That's that's a, a, a big thing because normally you wouldn't go to Italy. Uh, somebody going to Italy, you need a year yeah. to to do that. So I tried in the ten years I lived there to visit every region in Italy. They have twenty. I've managed to I've managed to go to eighteen. Two right. of them are still missing, but I have them on the list, and I will visit them in the uh, in the future and there is the, the the cultural highlights so for a first time I, I would honestly recommend go to the highlights like Rome Tuscan countryside um, southern Italian uh, countryside but if people have time I would go on on regional trips and go to particular areas only because there's so much culture uh, to see uh, that uh, you need you need weeks for a for a particular region. I've read an article once that at uh, pieces of art in the in the 16th century, half of the pieces of art on the planet. Were in, were in were produced and made in Italy or, are, or were to be found in Italy. And out of that half of the world, a third was in Rome, a third was in Florence, and a third was scattered around the rest of the country. So that, that gives you an idea of, um, of what you, you can see. I'm talking medieval art uh, or gothic and, and baroque etc yeah. do not take that's west that let's say western art because if you go to egypt or you go to india or you go to china you find complete different kind of uh, yeah so that completely aside which is equally fascinating but we would be sitting here in two days time if you <laughs> uh, wouldn't stop me about about that but it's um it depends on what you're interested in. Obviously, uh, go and visit a market in Italy. Go to the south where they have market in 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 Palermo, where you have the hustle and bustle uh, over there. Or uh, a highlight is 
truffle hunting in the Piemonte area, if you're into truffles, yeah. um, better find them yourself because uh, then it's a lot cheaper as if you would buy them in a, uh, in a shop where you have to pay for it in a restaurant. But um, depends on, depends on what you, what you want to do, but uh, a general tour around the country, obviously people should have seen Venice because it's unique but also go and see the the rural montaigneous area um in in the center of the of the country which um has a beauty of nature has a fantastic um um a fantastic food fantastic wine italians are a bit cheeky because they keep the best wine for themselves uh, they produce fantastic, uh, what my dad always called grape, red grape juices, fermented grape <laughs> juice. Um, they produce fantastic uh, wines, and they don't sell those fantastic wines outside the country because they keep it for themselves, right? So, uh, if you live there, that's absolutely perfect. <laughs> because you you go and and uh, and buy them and buy them locally and uh, if you're into wine there's I think there's no region in Italy which doesn't grow wine even the Alpine regions in Valle d'Aosta or in in South Tyrol they grow fantastic uh, fantastic wine problem is you might be drunk afterwards but that's a, an issue which other people have to take care of them. <laughs> So what do you miss most about living there then? Like now you're back in Bavaria, what do you miss about waking up in Italy? Um, the um, variety, now we are in, in, in the food section, the variety of groceries and, uh, and food which is on offer because Italians, and that's everywhere in the country, uh, take a big pride of the produce of their land and for Italians as such it is very important what they eat so yeah. going to a restaurant and uh, have house wine an Italian restaurant owner innkeeper can not afford to have bad house wine because his local uh, clientele wouldn't come. If okay. you find somewhere bad house wine, it's a place where they usually only cater for tourists, which come once and it doesn't matter whether the wine is bad or not. And uh, going to going to a market in, uh, in Italy and finding 12 different kind of tomatoes and the market lady, stereotypical, only about a meter and 60 tall, black hair, <laughs> Uh, and uh, at least a hundred kilos heavy um, <laughs> yeah. asks you, what do you want to do with your with your tomatoes? Do you want to do a salad or do you want to grill them? Do you want to put them on pizza? What do you use them? Because there's a different kind of tomato for any different kind of thing Class. you do. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, then you say, I want strawberries. When do you eat your strawberries? Not here are your strawberries. There's three people waiting behind me in the <laughs> uh, in the queue. When do you want to eat your strawberries? Yeah, today. And I mean, do you want to eat them now or now? Now, 
<laughs> what do you mean with that? Well, it depends. Now, now is now, is immediately. I said, good, then I want to eat them now, now, when I go back to the train station. Good, then give me that one. She takes away that little tray of strawberries from me and gives me something else and said, those were the very, very ripe ones. They go bad until tomorrow, but they've been on the plant until now. There is no white piece in the strawberry. There's no nothing, but you have to eat them now. Yeah. Those are the best strawberries I ever had in my in my life. And that dedication and that passion when it's about uh, when it's about food um, in Italy, this is what I what I miss the most, and getting particular uh, ingredients. And yeah, going to a market, going into a, a grocery shop, or um, or uh, going into a butcher shop, looking at the at the ceiling and counting the thirty five. Uh, Parma and San Daniele hams, which they have more or less of uh, decoration, and each of them is worth about 400 euros. So, yeah, um, yeah it's that's what I miss because I don't get it. Fortunately, I only have to drive four hours to get there. <laughs> so, what was your favorite Italian food? What was your like, what, what is the thing that you would order the most or like, that you miss? It de it depends on the the, the places I uh, went for uh, for lunch. So there was one um, there was one my favorite restaurants and the the owners of the restaurants are now after ten years going there are friends of mine. They have a restaurant in in Venice and I'll mention the name because it's a family owned business called Trattoria da Mimo at Strada Nuova. It's on the main road, but it's one of those non touristy um a restaurant mimo the owner is in the kitchen and mimo's brother is uh, the waiter they have about 50 seats in there and they do traditional cooking and whenever i go there uh, i have uh, a penne alla rabbiata and uh, they don't even ask me what i want they ask me, are you hungry? And I say, yes. And then I get a plate <laughs> of my favorite, uh, of my favorite pasta. And, uh, on so at some stage, Hey, Christian, I have that and that, which is fresh here. You're not getting the pasta. I'm cooking you something, cooking you something different. Okay, Apart from, from that Italian cook, well, pasta pizza is is good, uh, but there's um, there's uh, places like in 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 Tuscany, they have um, soups in the called bread soup, uh, which is um, absolutely absolutely fantastic, and you have it in. Um, you have it in different in different variations. So, whatever you give me um, in in Italy is uh, is fabulous. I'm sorry for everyone who listens who um, who doesn't want who, who who wants some recommendations. I can't give them because um, Italy is a country where you have to eat your you have to eat yourself through the country because in every yeah. region they do something different. And um, 
they do, and this is this is the the fa fascinating thing. They do have a different shape of pasta for different kinds of pasta sauces. Yeah. So you cannot eat you cannot eat a long and um, flat pasta with that sauce. Well, if you have a meat sauce, you need to have that kind of pasta. So it's a, a, a sacrilege. Yeah, if you sacrilege, eat yeah. a particular kind of pasta with the wrong sauce. Yeah. Or if you put cheese on seafood spaghetti or something like that, because that's something which you don't do. And yeah, you say like the word sacrilege and it, it is like... It is an, an affront to the, to yeah. the, they will get angry. They'll like, they get so passionate and so like over the top, like offended about things mm -hmm. like that. Cause it means so much to them. It's, it's, it's true. I had during the times I was, I was leading, I had people being told off by the local, um, by the local cooks for, for, in their eyes, misbehaving. And um, I, I, I think I, if I have friends or customers or anyone missing uh, uh, visiting, I try to in inform them beforehand because obviously I don't go to touristy restaurants and then you have to deal with with real Italy and that's what people normally normally want. And I turned around once in in the south of Italy to an American lady who wanted Parmesan cheese for her seafood pizza. First of all, seafood pizza is something which well questionable, and then putting Parmesan cheese on that, I told her, please, please, please don't do it. And she was very happy because she did it was first time for her in Italy, and she never uh she never knew what to uh, what to expect and what to do, and she she loved it. And then she had pictures with the uh, with the the innkeeper and the and the cook as well, because she got real true uh, cooking. And then they explained everything to her. So it was uh, it was great to to see the bonding be between a, a lady who was a bit afraid, and then. Um, uh, and then the local people who were also a bit reserved or afraid of communicating yeah. uh, with them. It's like that. The customer is always right unless you're in an Italian restaurant in Italy. <laughs> yeah, it's always a, 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 a two sides of the coin. Obviously, the customer is always right, but... Uh, if you, if I if I wanted always my way as a customer, then please, then I have to stay at home in my country where <laughs> I get it exactly the way I want, where I yeah. get the Chinese food, uh, German style, or uh, uh, the Indian food less uh, uh, spicy, yeah. or my food with uh, with grated uh, with grated cheese. I I at least go to a country because I want to. Uh, see how life in that particular country is and um, I don't want to uh, or I always have to say I'm an I'm a German who lived in Italy for 10 years who loves who loves the country but I'm still far away to understand everything uh, with Italian traditions um, uh, etc so there's still so many things I can and will learn 
from from future visits in Italy, and that goes for every other country in the world as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Christian. So you've had your three travel bubble choices so far. You've had Djibouti, South Africa, and Italy. What would be your fourth wildcard country, which is in a place that you've never been to before? It's not a country. Uh, No, it's not a country. It's an entire continent. Uh, It's Antarctica. Okay, I'll give you that. Good, because then I would concentrate on, let's say, the Chilean or Argentinian part of Antarctica, because that's the the, the kind of touristically developed part of uh, Antarctica right now. Um, since always, uh, I wanted to, or since I started traveling, I wanted to go to Antarctica and... Uh, um there's um i love penguins and then where do you find well you find penguins in the galapagos and you find them in south africa and in argentina and other places as well i've seen penguins in the wild but a penguin for me belongs to antarctica and uh, albatrosses and uh, and uh, and uh, leopard seals and all all those people they belong there and i always wanted to see it and then well, living in Europe, that's exactly the wrong side of uh, <laughs> Earth uh, because you conveniently start trips to the Antarctic in southern Patagonia in Ushuaia. So a number of years ago, I uh, opened a bank account, called it the Penguin account, and regularly uh, put 100 euros aside every month on my Penguin account, and I thought there would be interest. Well, there wasn't any interest, so I had to accumulate more and more money (laughs) um, to have uh, the funds to go on an an Antarctic cruise and to go there and see Antarctica and see everything else which is around. Unfortunately, that's not cheap, but since I saved for more than 10 years, there's uh, enough money to go there and to, to see... Um, to see Antarctica and to see the the Southern Atlantic Islands like South Georgia and South Shetland, South Orkney uh, Islands and see the wildlife. And there is a a relatively inexpensive way to go there with one of the cruise companies which go with expedition hybrid vehicles where you have only 500 or 600 people on there. That's way, way, way too much um, for somebody who is used to be on trips with 12 people. Mm. And um, so I want to go with uh, one of those expedition boats and there are a handful where you have a maximum of 100 or 150 people. Yeah. Uh, which you which you share um, your encounters and your adventures uh, with, and that's going to happen as soon as um, the circumstances allow it. Yeah. So, like logistically, do you have to fly somewhere? Where Where do these boats typically leave from? Is it Oshawaya? Yeah. It's uh, it's Ushuaia and less uh, from Punta Arenas in. 
in in Chile, but uh, I would say eighty percent of that business goes out of um, goes out of Ushuaia, and then fifteen percent out of Punta Arenas, and five percent go from um, South Africa or even less than that, South Africa and Tasmania, to different places. But where you can actually see something because Antarctica is not that. Uh, is 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 not that hostile in that area is in the Antarctic Peninsula and the closest point to that is Ushuaia because right. the boats only take about 48 55 uh, hours to get across the the Drake Strait so to do an Antarctic cruise uh, you have to get to Ushuaia okay getting to Buenos Aires takes long and Ushuaia takes longer but and it's so expensive, but it's because you need like the specialist ships, and also you've got the naturalists on board who, like you yeah. typically, who like explain the wildlife and explain what's going on to you. So yeah. it's, it's 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 once in a lifetime experience. But like you say, you've you've you knew that, yeah. so you set aside that money. And, and, and this is this is this is the this is the reason this is the reason. So if you if you choose to to pick a a smaller boat. Uh, there is a number of uh, operators, and if you want to, in, in beside the podcast, you can give that extra information, which companies do that. There is, a, I would say, about three or four reliable companies who have a meticulous safety record and who, who give the, the people the value for the money. We are talking a lot of money, and we are talking an amount of up to 500 or 600 pounds per person per day. Uh, However, um, this is an all-inclusive. It's not like what people think with a cruise. You go there and you have to pay for every extra boat trip or for every extra landing or or things like that. That has everything included. You have a boat with... I've done something similar in Spitzbergen and we had a boat with 100 people and we had... Uh, 16 naturalists, scientists, etc. So uh, the ratio between uh, scientific or expedition staff and passengers on those boats is about eight to one. And yeah. if the boat's not not ex- uh, completely full, it's six to one or seven to one. So you have one of those know-it-alls, and I mean know-it-all in a very, very positive way there, because <laughs> they bloody really know everything. You you think you make a joke and say to, that that's in the north, but I know they, they do the same in, in the Antarctic. You ask them, what's that bird? I can barely see a bird. She looks through her binoculars and says, that's a that, that, and that's Gua. It's absolutely amazing and you've got such experts there and that's what i think is uh, is absolutely amazing and fantastic and i've spoken to people who've been there and they all raved as the holiday of their lifetime and i want to have that as well okay so there you are four countries locked in so you've got germany as your birth country you've got Djibouti, south africa italy and antarctica as well chucked in there Thanks so much for that, Christian. Before you go, I'd like to ask you a few generic travel questions, if that's okay. Sure. Are there any countries that just missed out on the on this on your list? There would be Bhutan, also a country for uh, 
for smaller for for smaller scale tourism. Have, have you been to Bhutan? I've been okay. to Bhutan and I love the gross national happiness uh, yeah. uh, principle they have over over there. I've been there. My problem is my favorite travel destinations all turn out to be a bit more expensive. Uh, I don't know why that is. That comes that with my character or whatever Bhutan. Uh, you you can only go to Bhutan on an organized trip, but you can organize it for one or two people as well. But you always have to have your own local local guide so they can um, transmit the proper uh, history. So you you don't you, you don't go there and then know nothing about the country. You, yeah. you always do it with a guide who knows the country, and the information you get is really high end. So. Um, that's um, that's absolutely fantastic. That missed out, and then there's then there's so many other for beauty of nature. Costa Rica would have missed out. Ethiopia for uh, the history background. Uh, um, there's 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 places in the U.S. Uh, which I which I love. Um, but I was put away from thinking about that because I've even been there or I didn't want to go with a president which they had in the <coughs> last couple of years. <laughs> Hopefully that changes to the better. But yeah, there's I have huge difficulties of, of uh, naming favorites with everything, but well... Needs must for the podcast. <laughs> you know, you can... Yeah. You, you narrowed it down to four, so that's great. Um, yeah, Christian, what would be your top travel tip for someone that's about to embark on a trip to see the world or get out of the country? What would you say to them? Smile, smile, okay. smile. A smile helps. A smile helps everywhere. If you go to, if if you meet people, if you go further away into places um, where you've never been before, there's a slight chance that you don't speak the language of the person who's who sits opposite of you the chance is even bigger that the person doesn't speak the language uh, or the language is you're speaking so there's a way there's no way of communicating with uh, words but communication with a smile uh, always helps to shovel away roadblocks yeah uh, if you smile at people, you might you might get the help. Even if you're in in China, they want to help you, and you realize after two minutes uh, that you ask them for the right direction, that they don't have the slightest idea where they send you. But you smile, and you're happy with that they helped you, and then you smile at the next person. If something goes wrong, because uh, a train in Germany is late, which happens more often than you would think. Uh, smile about it, laugh about it, because there's nothing what you can do and uh, change it. A smile is for free. Smile doesn't cost you anything. You can do a smile at any time. And there has never, ever been a situation in my life where a smile put me in a worse situation than I was before. <laughs> Yeah, that, so, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it, 
it crosses boundaries. It's it's language proof. Yes, and it it gets it gets you to places where you would have never thought you would uh, you would go. I was in 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 Santiago de Chile. I was allowed into onto the roof of the biggest mausoleum and their biggest. Uh, um, uh, a cemetery. It's it's a it's a snail-like mausoleum where all the Italians uh, get their graves and their uh, their little place niches for their urns. And if they need more space, they just add another uh, floor on it. And he, I thought he wanted to rob me. No, he just wanted to show me the beautiful view from the top of the uh, seven-story building and all because I smiled at him when he uh, did his cleaning work in the in the catacombs so smiles take you to places you would have never uh, thought you would get to okay so Christian I know when we first met in Slovenia like Bleb we did we did training mm-hmm. and we all had to bring something and we auctioned off like a charity auction and I bought brought a teapot typically English mm-hmm. teapot with some chocolate so, so that leads me on to what would be your best souvenir you've ever bought from your travels, aside from my teapot, of course. I can actually show you the teapot. The, tea, the teapots in the in the um, uh, in my uh, glass cupboards okay. of relics. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, no, I found it. I found it funny. Um, best best souvenir let me have a look over there because i'm sitting <laughs> in my office at the some of the souvenirs over there i i call for me i collect chess pieces and chess boards okay. so okay um not the typical ones but if i find a country where they have uh, particular pieces like made out of made out of wood, made out of stone, uh, wherever I try and get one in all those countries. And I have, I have, um, I think 27 or 28 different uh, ones. The biggest, the biggest board being a square meter and the smallest one uh, being made out of a tagua nut in Colombia, a a bit bigger than a chestnut. So, um, from for me that are those are those are souvenirs uh which i which i take home but best souvenir do you seek out the chess pieces or do, Sorry? You, do you seek out the chess boards and the chess pieces or do you just if you come across them you'll buy them or do you actively go looking for them well when i'm traveling by myself i have to look for by myself when i am uh, when i happen to be on a group trip and I have fellow travelers, I tell them at a welcome meeting. So if they find a chessboard or a chess pieces somewhere, they uh, please want to tell me because I might buy it. In, in Malawi, I had the case, I saw them actually carve them out of wood. And I said to him, I want that, but I want the chess as the chess pieces. I want the big five. I want lions and elephants and things like that. And he didn't have them. Uh, so he said, uh, I paid him 50 US dollars, which is, was at that time a lot of money. And he said, he's delivering them. When do you leave? And I said, we leave Thursday morning at six o'clock. Good. I'll bring them to you evening before. Evening before, no Malawian um, 
uh, Carver with my chessboard <laughs> was to be found. And I said, yeah, stupid bloody idiot, you've just lost $50. Uh, $50. Guess who was waiting at the gate of our campground the next morning at 6 a.m.? being very apologetic and apologized. And he thought, he, he said, uh, he decided then to add giraffes to the chessboard. And the giraffe broke because of the long neck. Oh. So he has, and for that reason, he wasn't finished. He was only finished by 3 a.m. in the morning and he didn't want to come then. So he decided to meet me at 6 a.m. in the morning and bring me my chessboard with lions and rhinoceroses and giraffes and and all of that. Oh, uh, that so my most, it's, it's not the biggest one I have. It's not the most expensive one. It's also not the, uh, the most artistic one, but it's the one where I have the most, um, uh, the most memories with yeah, because yeah. he stood there at 6 a.m. in the morning freezing, oh. uh, but giving me the stuff which he sold me three days before. That's cool. I like that. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. So, what? So, would that be like the your souvenir that you'd say was the best or the like the most memories attached to it? Then, yeah, for me, for for me personally, that's the that's the one where I have the 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 best story uh to uh, connect it to there, there's uh, some other ones i um um i bought a prayer wheel in in bhutan uh, once and because i don't do small i bought a big one and uh, a real buddhist prayer wheel well there was that guy who wanted to sell it to me so i bought it and I had to carry it home, but it's about that size. So <laughs> weighs seven or eight kilo. And what I did not think about was the fact that I had to carry it for three kilometers <laughs> before we reached our uh, our car. But that's the biggest one I took home. And German customs asked what's in there because they couldn't think about somebody getting a prayer wheel as a as a souvenir. But still, the 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 thing. Other souvenirs, whatever is, whatever people like in a country, whatever can be connected to the good memories of the place you go. And this is what I buy. Friends say I'm addicted to phallic symbols. So everything which is long, <laughs> uh, everything which is long and thin, is in danger of being caught by myself. That's good. And, um, yeah. So I like it. So. Uh, we've talked about all the positives and all the best times uh, when you when you've been mm -hmm. traveling around the world. Have you ever mm -hmm. had any been in any danger or got into any scrapes on your travels? I wouldn't I wouldn't call that danger, but there was a situation which, in hindsight, is a very funny story. Uh, I was in Madagascar. And at the same time, there was the Sommet de la Francophonie. So all the French-speaking countries are meeting every couple of years in one of those French-speaking countries. And then there's presidents and kings. So we were I was surprised to find a Royal Air Maroc 
uh, jumbo jet on the airport in okay. Tananarife in, in, uh, in Madagascar. And that was because of that summit, because the Moroccan king was there and some other people as well. And um, a lot of police to keep all those politicians and VIP safe. So they congregated policemen from all over the country to protect those people. And then they were around during town. And we were out in town, <coughs> sorry, and meeting and had our last night's dinner. And then going home to the different places where we, uh, where we actually stayed. And uh, driving home, there was a sudden checkpoint. Well, it wasn't a checkpoint, but the police stopped us with machine guns wanted to see our documents. And I didn't bring my my passport because of being afraid of it being stolen or lost or anything like that. I was leaving the next day. But as a German, I always have a plastic ID card with me. And those policemen said they wouldn't, um, wouldn't let me go because this is a violation of the law. I have to have my passport with me. It's proper identification, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone else was allowed to go home. So our, our uh, taxi driver took all the others home. And fortunately, our tour leader was uh, with, with us then. And he said to me in English, you lose your ability of understanding a single word of French now. You don't understand a word of what they are saying. There's your passport. And I said, my passport's in the hotel. Yeah, where? Yeah, in my in my backpack, in that small, it's in there. And he said, good, I get it. And you, you're not, you're not moving from here and you're not saying anything and you don't understand them. And he went away, convinced the people in the hotel who he didn't know at all to get my passport, to get everything to show my passport to the people. In the meanwhile, there were three policemen with machine guns uh, watching me and the captain of them trying to convince me in French to pay them a bribe because otherwise <laughs> they would have to arrest me and I would have to go in the police station, etc., etc., etc. And I understood every single word they wanted. And I only said in German and in English, I don't know what you want to do. I don't know what you want from me. And it was raining. For me, it didn't matter because of 25 degrees, shorts, etc. But they were standing there and they were soaking in their uniforms and I wasn't moving anywhere. They knew they were uh, trying to scam me. So they couldn't actually chase me somewhere because they didn't want to have problems. But they stood there for half an hour with the machine guns pointing at me. So what do I do now? Until my, my tour leader came back and he said to them, thank God that uh, my friend here found uh, such trustworthy policemen because, you know, in our country, you would find those people who want to be bribed, uh, <laughs> who want to do illegal things, and he's found you and you're so kind and waited until I could produce the passport. Here's the valid passport. Here you see everything matches. I 
uh, find it so good that we met you and not those disgraceful <laughs> other people who want to uh, scam us. Can I have your name? I actually want to write a thank you letter to your boss uh, and recommend you. Uh, for being one of the best policemen you can be in that uh, country. So uh, they, the way how my my leader, Patrick, turned that completely around and forced them into letting me go without paying anything, without, without doing anything, that was one of the most amazing solutions or resolutions uh, of a, a bad or tricky situation yeah. and I was I, I was rescued by uh, one of the best true leaders guide I ever had in in my life That's the way cute. how he did that was absolutely amazing That's amazing I like that okay mm. so um, Christian uh, thanks so much for joining us today um, I really enjoyed your choices. You obviously, you've, you're in the industry, you've, you've traveled all over the world. So you, you give us some really insightful advice and some great travel knowledge. Is there anything else you'd like to say before I'll let you go for the uh, evening? Well, there's not uh, a lot to say. I just want to thank you again for inviting me to that uh, talk. Uh, I found it uh, great talking to you. I find it a fantastic idea that you started that uh, uh, that podcast. I think you do a great job with that. And I've subscribed already and I will uh, pester all my friends with that information and will tell everyone that there's some really, really interesting podcasts for train journeys, for car journeys, whatever, just if you lie in bed whenever you want to listen to that. Uh, great idea, and I wish you uh, great success. Oh, thank you very uh, much. With, with that. Oh. And you get so successful that you don't want to start tour leading anymore, and I made a big mistake. But. <laughs> well, the beauty of podcasting is I can, I can get them all uh, ready to go, and then mm -hmm. so they're, they're all scheduled before the season starts. And then I'm good to go. <laughs> They'll just release themselves. That's the plan. Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, thank you very much, Christian. You're welcome. Thank you for having me here. You have been listening to episode 20 of Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias, and my guest, Christian Schuberl. How did you like that one then? I told you Christian could talk, but in a good way. Uh, <laughs> I could listen to him regale all day. And I think... To me, he talks a bit like Werner Herzog, I think. So I love that accent. Um, and you can you can clearly see that he's passionate about travel. I The episode was called The Penguin Account. And to have that dedication and that knowledge to like, save up all these years to go on this dream trip, I think that's quite inspirational. Like, it just shows that you, if you really want to do something, like don't let that money put you off. Like If that's your goal, Literally save for, keep saving, start saving now and get that bucket list trip uh, planned and booked, Like even if it's if so far down the line, but you know you've got this, you've got a window to save for it. So I think that's quite a good takeaway. And obviously his top, his top tip, smile. I think that's a good, good tip, not just for traveling, but for everyday life as well. So thank you very much. 
to my boss, Christian, for coming on. It's quite funny uh, interviewing your boss. Like, technically, I'm a freelancer for Intrepid uh, when I do the tours, but like Christian says, if anything goes wrong in Europe, it's Christian that you're going to end up speaking to. And luckily, nothing ever did go wrong on my trip. I think I had to speak to him once regarding a little incident, but other than that, touch wood, everything was okay. So now it's time for the Travel Bubble Film Club. And I'm actually going to uh, put two uh, in there for you this week. Um, we heard a bit about from Christian about South Africa. So I thought it would be remiss maybe not to put a South African film in there. So this week's uh, Travel Bubble Film of the Week is My Octopus Teacher. And you might have seen this on Netflix, but it's set in South Africa. And essentially, it's just about a man who... Um, I'd say he falls in love with an octopus. He calls it his octopus teacher. I call it his octopus lover. Uh, but it is a really great documentary. Um, and it's available on Netflix. And it actually won uh, one best documentary at the at the Oscars uh, recently. So obviously that's a seal of approval. And it's well worth checking out if you can find it. And my second recommendation, because I think Christian sounds a bit like Werner Herzog, I've gone for Happy People, A Year in the Tiger. And that um, uh, Herzog-directed um, uh, documentary, with, along with Dmitry Vaskyov, Vashukov, sorry about that, Dmitry, uh, from 2010. And it's uh, basically, you follow, uh, they go into one of the remotest, most desolate places on Earth, which is um, a little village in the uh, Siberian uh, tiger, not like the animal, uh, a place, and it's like about how these people who live so such a wild, remote lifestyle can still be so happy without, despite not having Instagram or access to the Travel Bubble podcast. Uh, but yeah, so the the two films this week, and I urge you to go and watch them both. Two documentaries this week. Uh, but thank you for listening. Big thank you to Christian for coming on. If you can give us a rating on Apple, that's a great. If you can share share this podcast with people that you think might like it even better like i say we're now in 48 countries i'd like to get there over the 50 mark so if you've got a friend in a unusual country unusual unusual location who likes traveling uh send this podcast their way as well but thank you so much for listening i've been matty dias my guest has been christian schubel and you've been listening goodbye